0: I think the industry needs its heroes and it loves to turn those heroes into villains or the heroes love to turn themselves into villains <laughs> i mean it's not just like you know there's always some guy that's put up on a pedestal and he's the new guy and this guy's amazing i mean i think one of the biggest problems with crypto twitter is that there are there are people that will come in to defend the indefendable or the indefensible Welcome to the Breaking Chains Crypto Podcast. Every fortnight, we delve into the rumor mills, the developments, the industry news behind crypto, DeFi, Web3, and what makes the industry tick. From an insider's perspective on the true secrets and developments of what really makes a difference, how we're coming out of the crypto winter, and how the most exciting coins, tokens, and verticals to emerge from the industry will change the world. Stay tuned for more news from Breaking Chains. Hi, guys, and, and welcome to Rugrats uh, episode 2 uh,
1: got Reese and Ajit again. So how are you guys doing? Very well, thank you. I've been uh, traveling, uh, you know, all the way from Dubai to Denver. Um, currently hanging in New York. So East Denver was phenomenal. So just recovering from that now. No traveling yeah. for me, guys. I've been stuck down under in the heat waves for the moment.
2: So,
0: How hot is it down there, Reese? 38, 40
2: degrees.
0: Well, it's just a regular Bangkok day, right? Yeah, with a little less humidity. <laughs> been out for a surf? or Are you, are you sort of scared of the sharks still? I've uh, been
2: a little bit last week, um, not so much this week, man. It's just too hot to be out there, just cook. You know, like end up in a lobster in about
0: twenty minutes. So, laying low, laying low, protecting the skin.
1: Arjun, <laughs> how's how, how's Dubai still still going strong? Yeah, uh, I've been a, I've been away. I've been in Denver for ETH Denver. Uh, next week there is ETH Dubai and ETH, ETH Denver is the biggest uh, crypto conference, at least technology focused conference in North America. Uh, so it was great to see everyone. Now Dubai uh, is a, is a different vibe, but I think this this is probably going to be the biggest ETH conference in Dubai in a long time. So yeah, it's just uh, been a conference tour for me.
0: So, do you want to tell us a little bit about how ETH Denver was?
1: Yeah, ETH Denver is phenomenal, right? It's uh, this time it was actually broader than Ethereum. So, uh, Aptos guys were there, you know, a whole bunch of Cosmos guys were there, uh, the Mistens, Sui guys were there. Pretty much everyone except Solana, uh, you know, uh, crew were there from all across the Web3 ecosystem. It's also quite technology heavy. You know, if you are in it for the technology, as the meme goes. Uh, then eat Denver is kind of the place where you want to be in North America. If anything, you know, uh, so it was really nice vibe, you know, lots of, uh, cool people I've known for a long time, uh, or, and also a lot of new people getting into this space. I think there were some pretty notable events. Uh, I, my favorites were, you know, the interop summit, which was the XLRs. Uh, you know, very uh, interoperability focused uh, event essentially about, you know, bridging all of these different blockchains and and what's going on with essentially creating an interoperable ecosystem across blockchains. That was really cool. Uh, Then is, you know, there was a lot of ZK. ZK is kind of the new meme amongst VCs. So uh, Polygon announced their, you know, ZK EVM. Uh, ZK Sync also announced that they were launching their zkVM, and there was a bit of a contest between the two about who was the first. Uh, then Scroll announced their girly testnet. So there was a lot of, you know, ETH scaling, ZK rollup type of stuff. Uh, Coinbase, were pretty prominent, uh, you know, with their uh, base announcement and you know, that generated a bit of discussion and controversy, but overall it was pretty exciting. Then, uh, you know, uh, oh, and, and uh, one thing I noticed is that there's a lot of infrastructure being built. So, you know, there were so many announcements about, you know, uh, infrastructure components, but I didn't see a lot of great apps, you know, come through. Maybe it's an ETH type of thing, or maybe it's kind of the, you know, the culture of Ethereum where a lot of people are just uh, launching lots of different things. You know, ETH has been the source of uh, a lot of other blockchains when it comes to ICOs and stuff like that. So uh, so there's a lot of infrastructure being built, but there isn't that much, you know, of uh, sort of cool applications coming through, at least I didn't know there's too many things that I could get really excited about. Uh, but in terms of infrastructure, you know, indexers, oracles, uh, bridges, all of these different rollups, app chains, uh, different, uh, you know, uh, type of blockchains, uh, staking pools, all of that stuff, there was just a huge amount of uh, excitement. Uh, and even in the bear market, right? I mean, so many people, it was the biggest event Ethan and where I've ever seen uh and uh, it was just uh, the vibe was phenomenal so in spite of all the fud that's going around and the prices uh, it was really great to get out there and meet a lot of good good builders G, you you mentioned that like the guys from aptos and
2: sui and a couple of other vl ones it would be looked at as competitors to eth or trying to displace like the the network effect of ETH to some degree with whatever their unique value proposition is. What was their uh presence like? It's interesting that you mentioned that, like that at an ETH fo- focus conference that we have direct competitors there. What's um what did that look like on the ground?
1: Yeah, so ETH is very, very big, right? ETH is so dominant that I don't think anyone in ETH feels particularly sort of imminently threatened by any of the other you know chains. In fact, uh, eth is sort of this you know now this uh, sort of this mother chain that bitcoin used to be and you know it's quite nice uh, it's sort of a nice vibe a lot of eth devs kind of go see you know what's going on with aptos and sui and 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 and, and cosmos and so on uh, so so and and the other way around right so a lot of the folks who are coming into web3 through some of these other chains just want to explore what's going on with zk and so on so i mean on twitter and social we tend to fight a lot right i think a lot of these there's a lot of competition amongst tokens uh and token holders you know everyone is kind of uh, fudding each other's bags but when it when you take the money crypto stuff out then i think a lot of the the core tech people don't particularly care you know they just want to see what's going on across these ecosystems and and what are the things they can build how they can essentially you know build cool things and and get paid for it and have fun along the way right so I, I think there is also recognition that you know eth is the dominant player right now eth is kind of you know by far dominant across defi nfts and gaming if you include layer 2s but you know there are there is innovation happening outside of ethereum uh, you know whether it's with fuel labs or move uh, the different types of vms coming online you know different uh, consensus algorithms and and, and all of the stuff that celestia guys have been doing with rollups uh, Cosmos is still seen as, you know, the, one of the most innovative ecosystems. So there, there was a lot of excitement around some of the interop work that caused the, you know, Babilon chain and Eigenlayer are doing. Uh, so overall, I mean, the, the TLDR is when it comes to tech, I don't think people tend to, you know, fight each other or feel threatened. But when it comes to money, crypto, and, you know, tokens, uh, people, token holders, bag holders tend to fight each other all the time. There's a lot of PVP. But when it comes to tech, I think people are very warm and welcoming of each other. Well, Ajit, you can't do a thread to somebody's
2: face, right? Like you need Twitter to do the thread about somebody. So in absence of the thread,
1: I don't know if people know how to fight each other's bags face to face. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to fight each other's bag IRL, right? Because when you, uh, it's very easy to fight people on Twitter because we tend to depersonalize each other. And, you know, so it's like, hey, Anatoly, I'm you know, picking a fight with you. But when you meet Anatoly in person, then you don't feel like fighting, right? So I think it's a, uh, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. So it's easier to fight on social because, you know, we tend to depersonalize each other and it's a lot more about tokens. Uh, but when when we meet each other in person, uh, you know, it's, it's a very different vibe.
2: You know, it's interesting, like every time there's like a large scale conference, it seems that... Um like Someone will share the most ridiculous thing that's happening as far as like the participants or like what's going on on stage on the intros or like the intro day, you know. And this one was really no different. We had that, um, that song got circulated pretty quickly about Sam and <laughs> Doquan and all those kind of stuff, right? Like, it's, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's not a really an accurate representation. It's kind of like, those moments that are very like, like probably like one percent, no less than one percent of the time of like, like what's actually happening there, and it's the thing that gets spread the most. Oh um, yeah, I think it's just like, a, yeah, like we've all
1: seen like vitalic dancing kind of thing, and like we obviously all like respect yeah. what he's yeah. done. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you know, in, in his glorious man boobs, uh, doing these apparently cringe videos. I didn't find them cringe, but yeah. So I, I think. Uh, you know, if 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 we really wanted to take ourselves too seriously, you know, we would work for a bank or for a very large web two company. I mean, I've heard this before from, let's say, some of the crypto lawyers and policy people who say this is not a serious industry. It's a very serious industry, but we just don't take ourselves too seriously because it's early stage tech and, you know, we're very exposed to randomness and a lot of things change very quickly. So there's no point in taking yourself very seriously, right? We've seen uh, the kings disappear overnight. I mean, whether it's Suzu, Do Kwan, Barry Silbert, these are some of the most successful people and then they kind of explode and disappear overnight. So there's no point in taking yourself too seriously. So it, there's a lot of fun vibe. There's a bunch of cringe, cringe stuff. There's a bunch of woke stuff. But at the end of the day, it's mostly people trying to have fun in their own way, right? So And and that's, that's the best part of crypto. I wouldn't do this if it wasn't that much fun.
0: I think the industry needs its heroes, though, and it loves to turn those heroes into villains or the heroes love to turn themselves into villains. <laughs> I mean, it's not just like, you know, there's always some guy that's put up on a pedestal um, and he's the new guy and this guy's amazing. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems with crypto Twitter is that, you know, there are there are people that will come in to defend the indefendable or the indefensible. And, you know, you'll sit there and you'll say something and, you know, it's, it's profoundly correct, but... Uh, it's, it's wrong like you you're just completely wrong and you we know better than you and then when it actually happens there's there's always a little bit of gloating of the i told you so but you know it just it repeats itself ad infinitum it's not you know there's no i was saying this yesterday that when when you start to do due diligence in the industry it's amazing how many failures happen on the on the people background check before you even get yeah. to the project or the uh or, or, or the fund or the strategy, and um, I think that's it's uh, it's, it, it's it. That's why I think, as you say, Arjit, that you shouldn't really take the, yourself too seriously, because whilst the tech is amazing and evolving and, and doing really great things, it, it's it's very easy to forget that it, there are some nefarious actors uh, in in the industry as well.
1: This is something I've been, you know, I spend a, f- a fair amount of time with policy people these days. Uh... Uh, and 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 one of the things that I personally believe is that you know there are no such thing there, there is no such thing as a good actor or a bad actor. Uh, I, I believe that you know there are good incentives and bad incentives. And part of the problem with crypto right now is that you know we don't have much by way of uh, you know controls. Uh, so it's very easy for uh, you know you know I mean the, the stuff happens in TradFi also, right? There's a lot of bad things that happen in TradFi as well, but. I think the part of the challenge in crypto is that there is this assumption that because you know we have smart contracts, we're not going to need any sort of uh, in, you know like social incentives for people to behave well. That leads to people doing a lot of dumb things, right? And 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 these aren't necessarily you know bad people or good people. I think a lot of people start as good people, but. Because they have this opportunity that dealing with, you know, a lot of other people's money and a lot of people think that there is there are no consequences for doing bad things. So that leads to people doing a lot of bad actions. Right. And that's uh, something I think there is there's a lot of sociological evidence uh, around things like the Stanford prison experiment where, you know, a lot of ordinary people essentially ended up behaving badly when they felt they were they had a lot of you know power and they could get away with it. Uh, with the bad things they were doing. So I think that's kind of what's happening with crypto. So right now, a lot of work that's going on in policy uh, from a crypto perspective is, you know, how do we use this technology to design uh, better controls? Uh, You know, this asset class isn't built for some of the rules that exist today, right? But at the end of the day, we do need people to behave better. And I I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of proposing uh, controls and incentives that will help make that happen. So what I'm hearing, Ajit, is just don't become the main character. Right. So d- don't become the main character. Do not let other people become the main character because whoever means becomes the main character, right, they tend to behave badly, right? Uh, whether it's Sam or Suzu or, you know, a- a- Andre or, uh, you know, whoever. I mean, there's a very long list of names, right? If people feel they have a lot of power and they're going to get away with it, the, the con- uh, there are no consequences of their actions, then they tend to behave badly and... I think we need to design systems so where people do not become the main characters. So, Reese, Rhys,
0: what's going on with this um, this Shanghai upgrade? Oh yeah, we're getting Scheduled pretty close to,
2: getting pretty close. Yeah, well, end of March, early April, we'll be like depending on when we get to the blocks. So, do we time to cut over and the um, the merge process and cycle will be complete? With users will now have the ability to withdraw their stake Ethereum. So. There's a little bit of concern uh, circulating around what will happen once um, that portion of rewards is able to be withdrawn and whether it'll be sold into the market, because you got to remember like the the issuance from the merge up until now hasn't been able to hit the market. So it's been a little bit of a, I guess, a synthetic reduction in supply um, because it simply cannot exit the system. And what happens when it can, um, And whether that will lead to a sell-off, there's like arguments for and against like a a deviation in price action to the downside regarding like the majority of ETH that was staked happened at a much higher price. So the stakers are less likely to sell, but I think it's all arbitrary, right? And it's from a, like a, a high level um, view on like um, sell the news events, which is happens to be like probably the most common, Outcome of these things when it relates to Ethereum is that, um, number one, it's very hard to predict those kind of actions given so many variables, like trying to work out macroeconomics. Like, no one's an expert. Um, uh, Oh, mate, everyone's an expert
0: in crypto. Everyone. Like, it's like, it's it's the expert central. The one thing I've learned in crypto is what everyone thinks is going to happen isn't going to happen. It just doesn't happen the way people think it is, even though they're experts. (laughs) Well, it's no different to macroecon, is it really? Like, there's still prices
2: in the recession. You know, like just econ full stop, right? Yeah, that's right. Does a recession happen if you knew about it 12 months before the recession?
0: Exactly. But the thing I think is even more funny is that if you put 100 economists in a room, you would get 100 different opinions, right? So, you know, I think it's just economics 101, right? It's uh, everyone everyone has an opinion.
2: I guess that's uh, Uh, really where we're at. We're in Shanghai. It'd be good to get a G. What are your thoughts on the Shanghai? upgrade and what that unlock means for like ETH price action and ETH in general?
1: Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the price action is uh, you know a bit less relevant. I think this uh, Shanghai upgrade is extremely important for Ethereum security. Uh, you know, we noticed uh, we have seen some problems with the staked state ETH, ETH peg, but in the short term, anything is possible, right? Prices are impossible to predict in the short term. Uh, just about anything is possible. I think I think I think I don't think people will suddenly unstake and dump ETH, right? I don't know anyone in the ETH community who's kind of saying, look, oh wait, I'm really waiting to sell my ETH. I can do that today. I can sell staked ETH and you know, and, and there is not much of a price discount. Uh I mean it's the maximum of 2 you know, two or three uh, percent max, right? On uh, one step that's pair. So I can sell my stake ETH today if I want, if I have a stake wheel, I do. Now, if I stake in the beginning for through the beacon chain, uh, then that's a bit of a problem. You know, Then there is a fair amount of ETH there, but it's actually at less than 15% of the supply. So I don't expect a negative price impact. If anything, I think long term, it's pretty bullish. But obviously, I'm biased, right? As an ETH holder, uh, I'm not fully objective about this. I think if like when you look at
2: like the the BTC ETH pair is probably the most um, interesting subset of the merge from a price action perspective and how that chart has behaved versus uh, BTC with like the BTC issuance obviously continuing along as normal uh, with no change and the um, supply of ETH essentially shrinking based on those emissions, not being uh, liquid. Um, so I've seen, I think we've seen some positive movement in that BTC ETH pair, and it's man, it, the chart looks pretty strong from my perspective. But it's interesting to see like what that supply-demand ratio looks at between the two big king assets of uh, the ecosystem, and what happens when you slow down the emissions. Because like you know, ETH never made that uh, extra low. that BTC made down to that 15k range. We didn't see ETH uh, ever make it down to that level again and create a new low. So. I thought that was very interesting, particularly when we look at cycles past, like the E the side of price actions typically like leveraged to the upside and to the downside. Um, but this cycle, it looks like ETH, if we don't make new lows on ETH, it looks like ETH made a leverage upside, but retained like the, that was not as levered to the downside. So I think that's a fairly big like um, shift when it comes to, um, these assets over a longer period of time to see ETH hold uh, a much stronger level, but whether that was related to the difference in supply and issuance um, or overall like bullishness around the ETH upgrade yeah. uh, remain to be seen, I guess, right?
1: I, I think one thing that has changed recently is that BTC is no longer boring. Right. So BTC has been seen as a, you know, boring asset class by a lot of people because on ETH you can build a lot of these cool things you have nfts you have defi you have gaming you have all this other roll-up stuff coming online so you know there is a, there is something for everyone uh, on btc i think what happened recently is that you know uh casey uh, released this uh, thing called ordinals which allows you to essentially mint nfts on btc right so now yuga labs has just done a A small, very premium NFT collection, which has a two BTC floor as of today. Uh, I mean, uh, and that's causing a lot of excitement around the other things people can build on BTC. Yesterday, there was this announcement about, you know, uh, using BTC for data availability for a sovereign roll-up, whatever that means. I don't think it makes a lot of sense, but it's a cool experiment. And then, you know, there are uh, folks like Babylon Chain who are saying, I mean, BTC has about, uh, you know, uh, more than half a trillion worth of uh, economic value. Why can't we use that for securing the economic activity on other chains? So, so Cosmos is essentially reviving uh, BTC. Ordinals are reviving BTC. Uh, B- they're making BTC you know, a platform that people can essentially build useful things with. And BTC hasn't had that brand, right? BTC has kind of lost a lot of young people in in recent years because, you know, the, the, the representatives have been Michael Saylor, Max Kaiser, a lot of the sort of the boomer crowd in crypto, whereas ETH has all the young folks, the you know celebrities, this and that. Uh, so I, I think this this whole ordinals thing starts to change the narrative. And you know, uh, and now I see a lot of interesting people building a lot of in- thinking about building a lot of cool things on Bitcoin within the limitations of that ledger. Uh, I, I think that's that's a shift. I'm, I've never I haven't bought a Bitcoin in a long time, but this year I. In the last month, I bought a few BTC, so that's something. Maybe I'm biased there.
2: You know, like my my main concern with and like I I see two parties in when the ordinal stuff dropped, um, and I saw the Bitcoin community split into two because we have obviously the Maxi camp, um, particularly like focused around not. Doing this and not adding like this kind of utility to the chain because it's a store of value, doesn't need any more utility, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then we have those people that are trying to innovate and produce a decentralized finance system on top of Bitcoin. And obviously, this is that first step in that direction. But it's interesting to see that camp split in two. Um, mm-hmm. and, and from my perspective, there's a like the, I guess, the elephant in the room with Bitcoin is that the security model is challenged. Uh, by the issuance and how that plays out over time. And they, yeah. the network itself is required to generate fees. So it does need the additional activity, you know? So the yeah. argument that it is a store of value and doesn't need to do anything more quickly falls apart because if it cannot yeah. do that and the the community can't rally over time to produce utility for that to generate the fees, it doesn't work anymore, right? Like it has a, a fatal flaw in the model if you can't gain the utility and usage through the fees once the issuance halves down to essentially nothing.
0: But you could just argue yeah, instead sorry. that BTC sorry. served its purpose, right? It, it served its purpose in the fact it it, it started a, uh, an industry, it created it, and it created and forced innovation. And and ultimately the evolution is is, is where, where where the industry is headed. Um, you know, once once the issuance all dries up, et cetera, you're gonna sit there and find, well, okay, there's no use for BTC, but BTC essentially was the thing that drove or was the coin that drove um the whole agenda of the crypto industry to where we are today.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. Now, uh, I think crypto is also going through a bit of a generational change. There is the whole, you know, a crew of people who go to uh, go to what was that a huge Bitcoin conference in Dubai and Bitcoin Miami, and the average age of, you know, the the, the Bitcoin crowd has been kind of going up. Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of these Polygon, Solana, a lot of these chains kind of see a lot of these young people. You know, uh, having a lot of fun, so it's a very different vibe. Whereas Bitcoin tends to see more of a political statement. So crypto is changing, and and there is you know there is this sort of a generation gap I feel between the the BTC folks and the and and you know some of the the cool NFT crowd that's now coming into crypto through NFTs and not Bitcoin. Uh, so I think this is a and and you know there is an attention economy aspect to crypto, right? If you You don't want to be forgotten, and bitcoins definitely does not want to be forgotten by the people who are the normies who are coming into crypto now, and the young people who are coming into crypto now. So, so I think uh, making Bitcoin relevant again, even if you know we don't see a lot of fee generation or we don't see a lot of you know like products being built on Bitcoin successfully because it's the ledger is fundamentally limited by its uh, bandwidth and data capacity. Even then, it's a pretty cool thing that you know it's kind of bringing bitcoin back into the consciousness of the of the new crypto crowd and people are saying oh shit this this stuff is actually not as uncool as we thought this is not just a pet rock you can actually build stuff on it i think this is phenomenal for bitcoin
2: yeah i agree I, i'm like happy to see some development i think it's um, it's much needed like there's a point like in the argument around ossification to create reliability around the issuance and the, the hard money um, kind of approach to like the value proposition of Bitcoin has its merits, of course, but it it certainly does need that innovation. And I think you're right. Like it's interesting, like the uh, demographic of Solana, right? There, from my experience and what I've seen out um, around the grounds, is the Solana community is quite young. Like that's uh, even compared to the ETH yeah. community, it feels like the ETH community is like in you know, its thirties, uh, but Solana is in its twenties, okay. early twenties. Um, and I mean, I yep. don't know what that means for yep. like the long tail either. Right. Because, you know, when people start to form the, I guess the social layer under these things is when it becomes the most powerful. And if you have the young developers sitting around there forming the social layer, it does make a, like a long tail argument for Solana, uh, cause Ethereum's biggest strength, right. Is its social layer? It's incredibly strong. And you mentioned yeah. at the top of the call, we're talking about Eat Denver and that the community doesn't feel threatened. Um, and I think that is uh, a great way to describe the social layer of Ethereum because it is just that strong that that's not uh, they're not insecure about what uh, potential Ethereum has yeah. to change the world to some degree. So that uh, a competitor trying to do it a different way isn't very threatening to the social layer.
1: Yeah, it it is threatening to some people. You know, uh, it just like Bitcoin has Bitcoin Maxis, Ethereum also has ETH Maxis. You know, so ETH Maxis are like the Fox News of Ethereum. And, you know, they're very loud and prominent voices in the ETH community. I don't think the foundation or Vitalik have done enough to restrain those voices. And I'm not going to name people, but, you know, they're very, very loud on Twitter and and on social. And they seem to represent the community, but that's not how the ETH community is, right? I mean, there's like maybe 10% or 5% of people who are maxis, and it's the same with BTC. I think a lot of people are, you know, very intrigued by where this, by the social activity, by the economic and, you know, the, the, the policy side of things. There's so many different things, right? There is something for everyone. But it's just that the Fox News guys in every community are the loudest. And, you know, they, uh, but when you go to these conferences and you meet people IRL, you don't feel that. But, I mean, on social, I mean, yeah, it's a very different thing. Ged, I need to know who the Alex Jones of Ethereum is. We can take it (laughs) offline, but I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna need to know. (laughs) I mean, we know, right? So there are a bunch of ETH maxes on social. I don't want to name anyone because I'm very close to the ETH community. Uh, But yeah,
2: you think like I I feel like the community vibe though between, let's say, Bitcoin and Ethereum, and this, this latest change with Ordinals hopefully it brings a little bit of this away, but the, what the community is focusing on at large tells you a lot, I think, um, about the direction 100%. of the chain. You know, like ETH is very much always looking forward and outwards. Um, whereas I feel a lot of uh, concentration of attention from other projects and the Bitcoin community in particular is on detracting and trying to bring down the developments of other chains and like being critical rather than innovating. And I think that's their biggest challenge to overcome as a community is to continue to innovate and focus on improving instead of um, trying to like derail or diminish or belittle. You know, it's, it's really odd in the last year seeing Bitcoin Maxi's call for regulation from the SEC to... Um, <laughs> you know, to label ETH as uh, security. I'm like, what What has happened to this community of like cypherpunks, you know, like, where is that when you're asking for the government organization to please stop what's happening on a decentralized network? It, it was a odd thing to witness around the time of the merge and all that kind
1: of yeah. Thing. You say that, but even the ETH guys, you know, some of the ETH guys can be heard saying that, look, ETH has been cleared by William Hinman. You know, we got that famous Hinman speech. ETH is sufficiently decentralized. So we are out of, you know, we have an out-of-jail card. We'll be fine forever. Whereas all these new chains, oh, wait, they are securities, right? They're tokens are securities. So I see, I see even a very small, you know, uh, but yeah, it's it's more loud in the BTC world because they have even more uh, safety from a policy standpoint than each guys do. Uh, that you know their bags will be safe, but I mean, I, I, I've you know, it's not uncommon in various crypto communities like Polka Dot guys are going around saying. They've been in conversations with the SEC, and now they're, be, you know, they they're in a perfectly safe position. Look at all these other new chains, you know. Look at the uh, uh, society. So I think this this is this vibe is not uncommon in you know, other ecosystems, also. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, Bitcoin obviously is the, in the safest position from a policy regulatory standpoint. So, but, but is it though, because ultimately?
0: I mean, I mean, it's kind of like spitting hairs. We talk about the SEC. And we say, oh, you know, this is a security. But people seem to forget that if it's not a security and it's a commodity, it's regulated by the CFTC, which has its own uh, regulatory uh, rules and and guidelines and and et cetera. And then, so I don't think there's a a path out of being regulated. I think you're either going to be regulated by the SEC Mm -hmm. because you are a security or you're going to be regulated by the CFTC because you're a commodity. And there's, there's no... Yeah, I agree. So I mean, I, I always think, oh, you know, we worry about the SEC, but you know, that's that's because they're they're, they're the ones that people can probably spell, and it's got three letters instead of four, right? So, um, yeah, you know, ultimately, it, regulation is coming, right? And I think that <laughs> yeah. the industry has shown that it can't police itself. It's shown that it has a lot of bad actors, and when you look at 2022 and you see, okay, let's let's start with with Terra Luna, and end with FTX um there was a lot of pit stops along the way where you know it just goes to show that you know users of the of the ecosystem aren't protected and that um the 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 regulators have have, have stood up, stood off and watched the industry evolve grow innovate etc and at the end of the, at the end of what's been a, a a quite tumultuous you know year of 2022 we've got probably one of the largest uh, commercial frauds in history um and we've got, um, you know, the, the SEC obviously filed, uh, and, and, and obviously a lawsuit's been filed against DoQuan and Co. Right? So, you know, it's it, it wasn't a, If you were to look hindsight in 2022, and say so we've got regulatory and criminal activity that's the, or actions that have been taken, um, you know, it, it doesn't bode well for people saying, "Oh, the industry's fine; we can regulate ourselves." It doesn't it's just. It just proved it when once you get too big. Um, the amount amount of wealth destruction that happens is actually quite, quite, quite high.
2: I guess it's it's not reasonable either, right, to expect it to self-regulate. I think, like, there's two approaches on this, is either, like, you put your feet in the ground and say, we are decentralized, we don't need to be regulated, and the other side of the spectrum is we try to come to the party and meet somewhere in the middle and try to negotiate around it. Um, I think it becomes a very difficult stance to hold. Uh, if we say we just don't want it to be regulated, it's going to happen regardless. And we're seeing steps already this week with Silvergate. Like it's going to happen if we don't start to approach it in a way and try to negotiate a way to retain the sovereignty of like decentralized finance ecosystems. I think it's a it's I think it's a big mistake to put your feet in the ground and say no regulation. Um, it's just not. It's not realistic. It's not a realistic outcome in any sense. In we've seen opinion. this. have seen this it.
0: battle play out. Right? Remember Napster? Right? Napster was decentralized. It was untouchable. Da da And then obviously the, the 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 recording um uh Artists of, uh, Association of America decided to go after them in a lawsuit and found that there was a centralized core and and ultimately the whole thing got shut down. But from there we got you know torrents. We then got to Spotify because don't forget BitTorrent. Actually, then evolved into Spotify. We've got Netflix. We've got all these streaming, et etc., and distributed platforms. Yeah. Um, so. But the regulators came in, right? The regulators came in and said, "No, no, 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 no." And then mainstream came in, and now we've got you know it completely yeah. changed an industry. And I think that's what what, yeah. what digital assets
1: does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think see there is a, a vibe in the U.S. and I use the word vibe a lot, right? So, uh, when it, when you talk to the U.S. lawyers, they seem a lot more confident about uh, where the you know their ability to uh, mold regulation in in the favor of the industry, whereas the Europeans are, you know, we know the rules. Yeah, uh, MiCA is evolving. The, the overall, the, the you know, the the governments are pretty friendly compared to in the U.S. right now. But there's going to be a very well-defined sort of rules. And, you know, uh, so, so decentralization has a history, right? Even before blockchains and all this token stuff, uh, Napster was less decentralized because they used to have servers. So, you know, somebody built BitTorrent and BitTorrent does not have servers. It's too peer-to-peer. Uh, so it was very hard for, the, you know, the U.S. government or the courts to go after anyone uh, because BitTorrent wasn't sharing files through a server now. Uh, DeFi isn't quite like that, right? So people own tokens, they have beneficial ownership. Uh, A16Z has a lot of votes in Uniswap and Compound. Uh, so, so there is a lot of influence people, founders, teams having decision-making. And recently, if you notice, uh, Jump Crypto got their money back from OSS markets, which is a, 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 make a DAO component, really. Uh, Jump were able to you know go to the court and say hey you know these guys need to return our money uh, which was stolen by the, you know uh, uh, the wormhole hackers so you, you even though European regulatory climate is generally a bit friendlier than in the U S right now but the courts are pretty the courts aren't buying the you know oh yeah there is no liability because you know we have decentralized governance type of argument right the courts are just can order you to do and they look through through beneficial ownership they look through to things like uh, you know influence and and control and uh, and and you know so, so it's a so it's a very different type of legal and policy environment there's uh, in in europe but overall uh, i i think uh, you know you can't have your cake and eat it too so so decentralization in an open source environment, and while also you know sustaining these types of abnormal profits, is not going to happen for the industry, right? So, so, so I think one thing I'm noticing with the, with lawyers now is that you know until a year ago, uh, crypto lawyers were very aggressive and they were very very confident that you know okay, we we're not going to be regulated in any more aggressive way than we have been. But this year, I think the vibe is completely different. There's a lot more you know humility. Uh, arising from FTX and all of the bad, adverse incidents that have happened last year. And now, you know, lawyers are saying, all right, we, we need to propose rules that make sense because, you know, the current securities regime uh, or the broker-dealer, uh, the CFTC uh, regime doesn't necessarily make sense for this asset class. Uh, but, you know, if you don't propose anything better, then we can these rules are the ones that will be imposed on us. So, So we need to propose That's something, it. which is a much yeah. more constructive
2: approach, right? And that's it, isn't it, G? You, you need to be at the table. And I know, like, Sam handled this argument very poorly against Eric Voorhees on that uh, Bankless podcast when they're having that debate. And clearly, they had, he had a lot of stuff going on. But Eric phrased a lot of this very well um, around how, where the best approach um, to handling these situations is. Um, and that, I think... In terms of what you're saying, you need to have some degree of seat at the table in order to make sure the worst possible c- scenario doesn't happen, and it's overregulated, right? So, yeah, middle exactly. ground there. Like, I, I, I can't. It's very difficult to agree with like um, restricting front ends and that kind of thing because you alienate away out a subset that, like, you know, based on their understanding of technology, you alienate them from it and exclude them from a system that benefits them greatly from taking ownership. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough subject and I think it's a good segue to talk about, um, I guess, macro side of things coming up this week.
0: Lucas, do you want know, to wrap us on
2: the macro? I know we've got a lot uh, coming up this week.
0: Well, I'd just like to point out that I did tell you it was going to be a 25-bit hike on the last episode. And uh, should have been
2: been 50 though, Lucas. That's the problem, should have, would have, could have, didn't. But,
0: but yeah, should have, would have, could have, wasn't you know? And uh, that obviously, that obviously uh led to a bit of a a bull run in in markets with the with the lower hike. Um, so what, what is the real macro backdrop, right? Obviously, you've got the um, Chairman Powell is is having his testimony uh, this week. Um, so look you get a lot from this but generally what happens is your the markets generally listen to words and um, what are we starting to see in the US at the moment is we're seeing that sort of uh, wage wages and and employment is there a squeeze i mean i always find that the, the toughest thing in in employment is actually not what's the employment number, but actually what's the participation rate. As more and more people leave the workforce, we get this drop in employment or, or we, we get a, a better unemployment rate. But ultimately, if people are leaving the workforce, then we see that there are more jobs uh, being sought after, and that obviously drives inflation. Right, and so that what does that mean? You either have immigration to to fill the gaps, or you try and bring these people back into the workforce. So, if, for me, the most important thing in, in in U.S. macro at the moment is is in, in, uh, the employment numbers and um, wage inflation, and whether that 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 uh, employment or workplace squeeze is going to drive inflation higher which obviously would lead to uh, a more increased uh or the, the, the 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 hiking would be um a little bit more aggressive um you know off the back of that obviously politically You don't want such high inflation numbers. I mean, you know, depending on who you listen to, inflation's either too high or inflation's coming down, right? So, ultimately, inflation is a backward-looking number when you when when it prints. So, the Fed's job is to try and rein in inflation, but they they have to do so in a way that say, are their policy actions helping with the overall agenda, which is to bring inflation lower. but their only role is monetary policy right what's the fiscal policy and and how and that's that's done by government sorry um yeah fiscal policy what's that done by government are we are we going to drive investments et cetera um you know the inflation reduction act was anything but right and we we're starting to see um the 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 ramifications of that through th- uh, flow flow through the, the through the system so interesting testimony this week obviously um uh in a republican controlled congress um becomes a different conversation than if it was a democrat controlled congress um non-farm payrolls uh coming on on friday obviously first friday of the month um that obviously be quite telling as well obviously the testimony before that will actually drive how the markets react to that non-farm payroll so pal pal's testimony before that um and then we start to look at, you know, we think about crypto and how the the, the macro backdrop uh, looks uh, impacts crypto. So I still look at crypto now as being traded as a risk asset, and um, as a risk asset, it's kind of a levered risk asset. So that's why, you know, you see BTC volumes trading four times higher or so than than ETH volumes because the liquidity is greater. Then obviously people going to use that as a as a proxy for, you know, easily achievable risk asset trading in 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 the back of macro tailwinds or headwinds. Um, i think what's really been interesting for me is to see the price of coinbase since the start of the year as as, as obviously got to 80 from 31 you know nearly tripling and obviously that's off the back of big big uh, buy up from you know cathy woods arc arc fund um, and you're starting to see, you know, the, the 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 tech stocks and et cetera, like NVIDIA. I mean, NVIDIA had amazing earnings. Um, is AMD to follow? Um, Apple's obviously on, on, uh, on the run as well. We saw yesterday, um, you know, Facebook had some good numbers recently. It's really, really interesting to start to see this economy, um, you know, bounce back or is it just a you know a short-term bounce who knows we'll find that out but I think overall um, a lot of people surprised by the moves in the markets at the start of the year um, obviously we had a bit of a pullback in February and in, in in crypto markets versus the, the big rally in January um, people always say to me you know this this rally in January but it, I mean ultimately it was a short squeeze over the Martin Luther King weekend and that caught people a little bit uh, by surprise and so where we're at is now we've got a new a new um a new baseline across all risk assets and a lot of nervous people worrying about what 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 Powell's going to say this week and and what the what the Fed is overall going to do with 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 rate hikes um etc so yeah, I mean that's that's to me is the backdrop, and obviously we've seen the biggest problem I think for crypto at the moment is the Silvergate development. Is that another failure that 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 puts another nail in in crypto's coffin, or or do we see that resolved quite well? I mean it's a tough one, but but ultimately the, the biggest decoupling that will happen between crypto and tradfi will be, be be the Silvergate situation at the moment. So that would be my takeaway. Do you think the Fed has regained credibility? Did they ever have credibility? I think to some
2: degree. I don't think to some degree, right? Like, I guess you could say the same thing for (laughs) a a lot of organisations, right, and governments, uh, whether they had credibility. But, like, the post-COVID, you know, inflation is transitory. We've been on a downward spiral of, um, I guess, trust in the Fed to do its job from that point. The the Fed has always been reactive for at
0: least a decade, right? They've always been reactive,
2: right? right? They can't always also come out and say, I mean, it's a very market indicator, right? So if Jerome comes out and whatever he says, you can watch the charts. Watching the minute candles during any time he's speaking publicly is incredibly fun. Uh, great pastime, but that's like the, the amount of weight that gets put in that. But the credibility, I believe, has been heavily impacted from how like their public perceptions of how they were dealing with inflation and the months leading up to like the exponential rise in the inflation numbers was it is transitory. And I'm still not convinced that that faith has been restored. It's almost like uh, Wall Street and market participants uh, think the Fed is bluffing on the higher rates for a longer time. And I just don't, it's difficult to see that the the price action is not reflective, in my opinion, of what is being said. And I I think that's based on like a loss of credibility from the, the public markets.
0: Well let's take a step back right when rates are high and the us has obviously got massive debt and is issuing debt all the time, they obviously would prefer it as a as a nation to have cheaper debt than uh, more expensive debt. So the pressure when you've got that much debt is always to have lower rates versus higher rates because your cost base is lower right if you're if you're basically your budget is is issuing more debt to pay 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 your credit card bill um you know it's not that's not a good great that's not a very healthy economic backdrop so obviously the lower your rates the lower your the lower your borrowing bill is yeah. uh so that would be my first takeaway so the the, the i always feel that the whilst you've got a, a, an eye on inflation you also have to understand from a treasury perspective that that treasury issuance and and how high rates can go right and if rates go too high what does it mean for the housing market what does it mean to you start to see huge bankruptcies across as we saw with um the GFC and 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 um, housing defaults, uh, the economy just spirals out of control again. Like, what does it cost you to borrow? You know, if you look at the Euribor versus uh, Libor spread, it's like two and a half percent, two point six percent in one month or something. It's a huge gap, right? Right. And don't forget that you know, less than you know, a couple of years ago, we we're both around about zero. So we've seen that massive um, rate hiking in in. In the US. But the other thing you've got to keep in mind is the higher the rates, the more cushion that the Fed can uh apply by by reducing rates in, in in a market downturn where they need to support the economy better. So it's always good to get that buffer back. And I think that was one of um Janet Yellen's things uh when we came out of QE and went into um the taper and then went into sort of that rate rises, is actually we needed a buffer just in case we had a problem. And obviously with with COVID, etc. Um, that 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 um Economic sort of woe happened, but ultimately, if we go back to the days of post GFC, the Fed has been kicking the inflation can down the street for 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 nearly two decades now, and finally, it just caught up with them, and they've had to they've had to take action. It's not like you know when I say about their credibility, if you say that the 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 monetary policy of the US has been sound for the past two decades, I would I would completely disagree with you. I I agree with you.
1: (laughs) I would never. Yeah, and and that's the now that's the bull case for Bitcoin, right? That the monetary policy is essentially run away, and yeah, they've just been kicking the can down the road.
0: And compounded by
1: the fiscal, and compounded by fiscal, right? Like that's like the
2: bucket is leaking substantially.
0: Well, let's take fiscal policy as a classic case, right? So when Trump came, got elected, all the uh fiscal stimulus that was needed to, to revive the, the US economy, right? Be it infrastructure build, et cetera, all of that just get blocked in the court, right? You want to build a new road in um in California, good luck, right? The the EPA just blocks this. You want to build this bridge, you want to build this, right? Try building a bridge across the Mississippi, whatever it is you want to do. It is always just surrounded in um uh you know, regulatory and legal problems, and and I remember under the Obama era, they tried to do massive infrastructure spending, and just could never get anything done because of all the litigation that happened. I mean, there's there's 15, 20 years sort of lag in in deploying um, uh, money to get infrastructure projects done. I mean, if you've ever gone into JFK and tried to get from JFK to Manhattan, it's just an absolute nightmare. It's like a third world country. So. The, what Trump did, which was really fascinating, I always find it really interesting, he just, he just commissioned 13 aircraft carriers and a bunch of other military equipment. Now, you commission an aircraft carrier, I think it's like $13 billion to build an aircraft carrier. Um, and he built 13 of them. Uh, building an aircraft carrier is like building a city, right? You build a runway, you build roads, you build a hotel, you build... Restaurants, you build everything, right? And it's it's it employs a hundred thousand people and you just we're gonna build a load of aircraft carriers because it's that's where the EPA can't hurt you. So ultimately what happens is people say, Oh, you know, he's only interested in building um, you know, in spending on the military and he's not doing any infrastructure spending. But actually, it's the most efficient way in the US to get fiscal stimulus done because it is such a huge job generating business because of the amount of things that actually need to be built for an aircraft carrier. Like you're literally building a city and you know in china they build these ghost cities as well right it's just like massive infrastructure and, and and fiscal stimulus that 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 uh you know it's hard to do in the us when you've got all that litigation that happens when you try to build you know i'm going to build this road or this this lesser spotted micronesian scrub fowl that we only have two of is going to die out if we build this road sort of stuff so um Fiscal is very, very hard to do in the US. And I think we saw that with the infrastructure spending bill. They want to spend the money, but actually deploying into shovel ready projects is actually really hard. And and this will go back to one of the things you might remember, Reese, is under the Gillard government in Australia. Uh, they just look for shovel-ready projects, and they just started building, like you know, sunroofs in schools and things like that, just to say we need to spend the money. Post the GFC, I don't know if you if you remember this situation, but then At every the school libraries, had, had libraries. <laughs> Yeah exactly, and every school had this sign outside, like proudly supporting our school by the by the Australian Labor Party or whatever. I can't remember what it was, but I mean, fiscal is hard, hard to do when you're a government because you want shovel-ready projects that can actually stimulate today. And it's actually very, very hard to do. Um, so what that means is that all that heavy lifting is thrown back at the Fed, which is why they often get such a bad rep. Because what they're trying to do the job of, of of fiscal through monetary, and it's obviously a lot harder to do.
2: Yeah, it's a sticky one, that's for sure. I think that that last uh, NFP we had um, was crazy, right? Like, the expectation was like, what, 500% over expectation? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that is um, a very interesting indicator. It doesn't seem like uh, Mr. Power was too um, thrilled about those numbers coming down, obviously, because it have the relationship that you mentioned that has to inflation.
0: Um, you can't make, you can't make policy just based on a single print. Right. And I think that's, that's no. the thing that, um, you know, a lot of jobs got lost and then they come back and then they got lost. Right. What's the net, what's the net trend. And I think, um, a lot of jobs got lost during covid like a load of jobs got got uh, furloughed or or people went to part time the biggest problem that you've got in 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 jobs is is the replacement by tech you know look at the number of jobs that chat gpt could potentially replace um we start to see you know all these ai um platforms uh start to really change the way we think about work um it, it's a really tough one like it, it, it we are in a in a very very difficult uh macro environment from a uh, a monetary policy perspective and um you know seeing those those job numbers come back is obviously great um especially post covid where people lost people were were losing their jobs but it, it, it's interesting to see the type of jobs that people are going back to the type of jobs that are being employed um what's the, the hour what what's the number of hours worked those sort of things yeah um
1: What's the participation rate, etc.? Oh, you know, I, I don't want to quote uh, a guy named uh, Vlad Putin. Uh, probably not the you know the the, the most touchy feely. Uh, I don't think anyone likes him. Uh, neither do I. But one of the things he said at the beginning of the war is that you know we are kind of going back. We're going to go back from the economy of uh, you know fake things in in Russian uh, like you know these metaverse things and digital things. Onto an economy built of real things, right? And it's it's a there's a little bit of that happening all over again because there are a lot of blue collar jobs that have been created. There are a lot of jobs coming through in airlines, McDonald's, UPS, FedEx. Uh, you know these types of trucking, real economy jobs are coming back. Whereas a lot of the digital stuff and crypto, uh, you know tech stocks, uh, a lot of this stuff has been on the on the way down, right? So so it's it's quite remarkable. Oil has been up. Uh, natural gas has been up. Commodities generally have not done too badly, given the economic situation. Uh, so, so in a way, you know, it was a bit prophetic uh, for Putin to say that we're going to go back to an economy of, uh, of of real things, away from an econo- economy of imaginary things.
2: But so, Ajit, what will I do with my board in this imaginary economy of real things you're talking about? I don't know, man.
1: I sold mines. Oh, <laughs> so, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think we'll buy them again when things go down a little bit. Then you know, at some point we'll go back to an economy of imaginary things, like Bitcoin ordinals and <laughs> don't worry, we're gonna make it. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Oh uh, gosh, it's fun. Um, what else, Reese? Talk to me. DeFi governance wall.
2: Oh, yeah, we're a few years like a few weeks past that now, um, but an interesting one. Uh, I think Ajit actually alluded to it a little bit earlier um, with, uh, I guess, the control of ownership of governance tokens between venture capital. Um, in this case, A16Z and uh, Jump, both competing for um, what would presumably underlying um, beneficial deployments from like the Uniswap protocol. Um. Yeah, it, it's interesting because these governance models we have actually be good for you to weigh in on the governance um side of this. We just spoke for about uh 10-15 minutes on macro governance and what that looks like at scale. And when it trickles down to DeFi protocols, we're still really trying to figure out the best way to conduct governance um that doesn't end up with the, with similar problems. And the token voting system. The ownership of tokens being one token, one vote obviously concentrates um, in uh, the power of those with most capital, right? That want to uh, influence um, these protocols, and there's some degree of ownership they have by holding these tokens. And it was uh, a very interesting moment in DeFi to see two of the giants um, as it relates to like early stage funding or development with A16Z and Jump Crypto, go a little bit head-to-head on um, pushing their own either preference or agenda with those underlying beneficiaries. Um, Yeah, I think it's just a a stage where we're at in DeFi. we're still trying to figure out um, what the best approach to do that is and how to avoid, I guess, um, individuals or corporations involved in the space acting without the... I guess, the the protocol's um, future yeah. in mind and what, what that looks like? um it would be good for you to weigh in on your perspective on yeah. the, the governance wars we're starting to see play out.
1: Yeah, so, you know, uh, the US lawyers tend to have a lot of faith in their legal theories. Uh, and there is a whole theory of decentralization, right? Where if you, let's say, own 30% of tokens in a, in a major DeFi protocol, and then you delegate uh, 10 20% of those to US universities like Stanford and Berkeley and so on, who essentially never vote any differently from you, right? They always vote the way you want them to vote. Uh, but now you're essentially claiming that because you delegated these tokens, you're decentralized and this and that. I mean, that uh, Uniswap vote was actually a win for decentralization. You know, a lot of us didn't expect Andreessen Horowitz to lose that vote. And I think, to be fair, the jump guys did a phenomenal job of you know, protocol politics and lobbying uh, token holders like Consensus and so on. So I was actually very close to that drama on both sides you know and, and watching everything that was going on uh, in the Uniswap community but I, I think overall it was a win for decentralization none of us really expected you know A16z to lose that vote uh but at the same time you're absolutely right right how decentralized can some protocols be if uh, one or two you know, large entities investors or founders can essentially sway the vote and I, I think the, that's where the some of the rules need to go uh, when we essentially you know uh, hold people accountable or liable then we have to see how much of effective influence uh, or control over decision making they have right so dopewan, Used to and his lawyers and Delphi lawyers used to claim that uh, you know Luna was decentralized. I mean, no one was getting fooled by that, right? We knew that Doe was the Mao of the DAO, and you know he essentially whatever decisions he made were actually getting oh, that's ex- <laughs> executed. That's good. Man. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so none of the you know we were, none of us were really buying the bullshit, but that bullshit was going around anyway because lawyers are great at believing in their own theories. Uh, so so I I, th- I think at some point, you know, we're going to have to look at what sort of if, you know, control influence or beneficial ownership people have and what does that mean for decentralization, right? And uh, I think there will be some standards like there are in equities markets around you know, 13 DGF filings and so on. Uh, and, and to make sure that, you know, if people don't want to be held liable or accountable for what happens so when the, for the bad things, then they also do not have too much upside in the good things
2: yeah i completely agree it's um it's contentious right because if i have let's say um i have 30 percent of the token supply and quorum on a proposal is 25 25 and i can effectively swing um in, in absence of like a, a rally against like what we saw with the a16c proposal a rally from the community against it and the lobbying Where's the ownership lie on that? Because that you could make the argument that you were the sole person responsible for the outcome of whether that was good or bad, right?
0: But we'd see that in the equity markets as well, right? If you want to do, you know, a hostile takeover, yeah. et cetera, or you want to change things, there's nothing new. I mean, it's it's like okay, you exactly. want to control, you need exactly. the votes, right? You want the votes, you go buy the yep. votes, and that's generally how it works, right? Like- it works the same have- in the UN, I think, in the World Health Organization, yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, with, with equities markets, we have a we have a whole history of MBOs and LBOs and not Robert Barons, right? I mean, pretty woman and Richard Gere and all that stuff. So T. Boone Pickens essentially raiding companies. So a lot of these rules happen as a result of you know uh, private interests uh, essentially misbehaving. And then investor protection rules coming around as a result of some of the issues around voting, beneficial ownership, and if issues of control. So, so, so I think some of this stuff is getting a bit reinvented all over again in you know in DeFi and 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 you know for for a good reason too uh, because you know we're trying to build systems that are fundamentally more decentralized than corporate interests. But some of these are not really any more decentralized, right? So. So I think uh, you know there are there are entire DeFi protocols that are controlled by two guys in a garage, and and just because it's a smart contract on a blockchain doesn't mean it's an, it's decentralized. So so some so you're absolutely right. I think some of the we can take some you know lessons from equities markets. I think we'll see similar. M&A activity, we will see green pills and poison pills, and you know we've seen a lot of uh, very interesting governance debates go on. Uh, but yeah, uh, some some standards do need to be defined pretty soon for when people have you know assets but no liability.
0: But well, I do think that the, the industry itself is is a little bit naive in thinking that everything is going to be altruistic and it's all sort of you know we're going to be singing kumbaya together, right? There's <laughs> it, it, it's not it's not a plaything anymore, right? The the market cap of, no, of, of BTC and E's together is huge, right? And and the, the 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 players in the industry are are no longer children, right? They're no longer you know tech guys. It's it's big corporations playing mm-hmm. in in a world where there's serious money to be made, right? If you look at the way Terra Luna was taken out, that wasn't taken out by a couple of kids in mum's basement, right? That was taken out by serious players with serious money behind them, and yep. um you know. People have got to stop thinking that, oh, this is the latest, you know, we're all in this together as
1: some, you know, Boy Scout wilderness camp. Yeah, but no one really believes that, right? I think it's a story that private interests that have a lot to gain from spinning some narratives tend to claim. But no one really believes that, you know, the, the small investor... All of the liquid funds, VCS, large institutions, uh, you know crypto corporates, all of these guys are all in it together right. No one really believes that. but I think it's kind of a nice narrative uh, 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 but, but no one is really buying it anymore, right? I think there's uh, well the more things change,
0: them, the more they stay the same, right? It's the same same old story. <laughs>
1: But I, I think the question is right. Can we use the technology that we have, right? The transparency that blockchains can provide, uh, some of the incentive systems that we can build, some of the governance systems we can build with the stack to 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 implement better controls that are a lot cheaper to to design and implement than what's possible with armies of compliance people. Uh, I, I think the the narrative needs to shift towards right. Uh, I mean, Rectec is such a phenomenal application of blockchain, but you know, no one is actually doing anything there apart from AML and you know anti-fraud type of work that Tian Labs and so on, Chenalysis too. But I think maybe there is a way to build much better controls using this technology. And it's just that the industry hasn't had to do it yet. Uh, so we haven't really invested in it much. But I think as the space gets a bit more regulated, we will see people start to use blockchain for transparency and controls as opposed to just, you know, how do we make money?
0: no i think I think the biggest problem the biggest problem that blockchain uh the hurdle that blockchain has to overcome is uh, what in, in in the in the transparency and, and permanent side of things um is is what problem is it trying to solve? Um, you know, it's it's really interesting when you start to look at like um migrant labor contracts, where you start in, let's say, Bangladesh and you end up working in Bahrain at a bottling plant or something like that. And does your contract change along the way? You know, how do corporations like you know, Nestlé, Coca-Cola, Mattel, etc., that use a lot of migrants sort of outsource labor? Um how do they make sure that the contracts and the work, the work environment, their their staff or or, or the, the people making their products are under right? And you know, I've seen applications of blockchain where we start to look at you know migrant worker contracts, and they've had grants from the yeah. UN and in the USA, etc. And 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 this this is quite an interesting point, but. But ultimately, the question comes back: Is what problem are you actually trying to solve here? Could yeah. a database solve this? Right? It's not that simple well, to to, to apply, the, apply the technology to something with the cost that comes with it.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, right? So I work with uh, with uh, Rebecca Reteg, who is the chief policy officer of Polygon Labs, and she's also, you know, a very well-known figure. Uh, very active. In, in the D.C. policy scene. One of the questions that, you know, governments around the world are asking more and more is exactly what you asked, right? What's the use case? So, uh, so Rebecca says, and we should uh, I'll try and invite her in, you know, one of our shows later on. Uh, what she's been saying is that this is the year of the use case. The question that everyone is asking in policy circles and government is, you know, uh, what is this blockchain for? So I mean, what can you do with it? And I think there, there, there is an active effort in blockchain association in DC to collect all of the use cases and things that people have built that have users and have applications. Uh, and, and it's not that we do not have applications, right? We have seen, I mean, we have seen some very interesting DeFi protocols that are that are transparent that have survived the collapse of the of the CFI space last year we have seen a whole bunch of stuff around financialization of art and culture and music we've seen games come through we've seen a lot of cool things happen it's uh, sure it's a bit early we've seen you know uh, digital money Bitcoin is a phenomenal use case we've seen uh, you know uh, tokenization applications so I, I think it's even though it's early there there are real use cases out there uh, you know around digital identity but- we have seen the blockchains fund ZK research all this stuff so so there is there is stuff right we just need to It's it's, tough to to
0: work out if if what's being used is just being used because it's the buzzword of the day, right? And I think it's it's very easy to say to people, oh, you know, we're going to use the blockchain for this or that, right? But ultimately, Bitcoin solved. A, a very complicated problem that many people have failed to solve, which kind is how do you solve
1: yeah,
0: right. like, distrib- distributed distributed uh value with, with and solving a double spend problem? Like, how do you solve the double spend, right? How do you solve the um the trustless nature of like why how do you decentralize the, the trust, right? How do you make sure that yeah. there isn't a centralized source of validation? Um and yeah. this to and me was was a problem that they solved, right? And someone had been yeah. trying to solve that for 20 plus years.
1: Yeah, and and there is a human interest story here, right? So there are lots of people who don't have bank accounts. We know that for a fact. We know that there are lots of you know people, immigrants, and and it's not just narrative, right? There is real data behind some of these things where the people in Lebanon and Syria and so on, they essentially need to be able to move money along with themselves, and there are no banks, and they are often fleeing oppression. There are, you know, often escaping uh, horrendous regimes. Uh, so, so I think there is enough of a human interest story behind a lot of these use cases, which kind of is for even more important than the tech side of the story. I think we need to educate, uh, you know, uh, policy in especially in policy circles. We need to educate people on what's actually going on. And and one of the things the industry hasn't done is, you know, we have laughed a lot. We have told a lot of stories, but we have never really collected data. Or done research, you know, systematically, uh, with with a few notable exceptions. I think this is the year of, you know, essentially doing a bunch of quantitative, uh, uh, methodologically—that's a big word—methodologically robust research and laying it all out in front of the governments. No,
0: absolutely, absolutely. I think there's there's been a lot of sort of test test cases and sort of pilot schemes done in in lots of different use cases for, for 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 blockchain technology. Um, but ultimately, it still comes back to um, the tech itself. If we go to Web three tech and, and tru- uh, trusted networks, and, and, and trust trustless finance, financial services, and, and other systems on on that Web three uh, trusted network that you couldn't have on an untrusted network of Web one and, and, and Web two. Um, anyway, um, we've sort of been going for about an hour and a quarter. I mean, so you know, we can we should probably wrap things up a bit here, unless someone's got anything else to add.
1: I mean, so I think we covered a lot of things today. We covered ETH Denver, we covered you know the, how the whole web3 ecosystem is shaping up, policy regulation, what's happening in markets and macro. The only other thing I would say is you know this is a, a bit of an existential year for the industry. Uh, you know, I, I think people are interested. you know, we saw a lot of binance news last week, we saw a bunch of tether news last week and now the news is not just happening in crypto media. Now we are seeing news in all of the mainstream press, right? Matt Levine is writing about it. Joe Bizantial is writing about it. A lot of these mainstream journalists are have become phenomenally educated and interested in crypto. Now, you know that's a good thing. Uh, in the short term, it feels like a you know oh my god uh, a concern, but you know in the long term, I think a lot of these uh, giga brain mainstream people taking such active interest in crypto. Uh, is phenomenal. I mean, once we, you know, we do need to clean up uh, the industry a little bit. It's it's grown quite chaotically. But I think, you know, uh, once we get a bit more organized for scale and a a bit cleaned up as well, then I think the future of the industry is very bright, right? And I'm really, uh, I see a lot of really, really smart kids on campus. A whole bunch of these CS, PhDs and professors come into crypto. We've not seen that before, really. So, the future is really bright, even though it sometimes doesn't appear so in the short term. Yeah, no, absolutely. Really, mate. Well, absolutely.
0: Well All right, should we wrap it up there? Any predictions? Oh, that,
1: that,
0: cool.
1: We're going to make it. That's anything. my prediction.
2: Oh, we're always going to make it.
0: We're always
2: going to
1: make <laughs> it. As long as we're saying GM every day, OG, we're going to make it. Absolutely. The last thing is DevCon is coming to Southeast Asia. I hope it's in Thailand and we can meet in person. No, That's absolutely. Right. That's in-person live stream from devcon you that'd be amazing absolutely
0: <laughs> all right guys let's wrap it up there all right gents
1: cheers yes thank talking. you guys have a good have a wonderful day cheers bye